Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we don't think there's any bigger idea right now, whether it be in the world of finance or elsewhere, uh, than digital assets. And we're very excited to bring you the latest episode uh, in our series of SALT Talks on digital assets and Bitcoin being our focus. Our guest today is Dan Held. If you are involved in the Bitcoin or digital asset world, you will know his name because he's one of the most prolific and interesting writers on uh, Bitcoin. Uh, but if you are not familiar with Dan, you should be, and, and you should definitely follow up on a lot of his writings, uh, both macro stuff that he's written on Bitcoin, as well as his regular commentary through his newsletter. But Dan is currently the growth lead for Kraken, his former, former company Interchange, a portfolio reconciliation tool for crypto institutional traders, uh, traders was acquired by Kraken in July of 2019. Uh, prior to that, he was at Uber on the rider growth and global data side of that business. And before Uber, he helped build some of the most popular early crypto products, including Change Tip, which was acquired by Airbnb, and Zero Block, which was acquired by blockchain.com in the second ever all Bitcoin acquisition. He was part of the original 2013 crypto meetup group in San Francisco, which was comprised with the founders of Coinbase, Ripple, Kraken, and others. But I know Dan is now coming to us from Austin, Texas, as are many people who maybe started out in San Francisco. But Dan, uh, welcome. Hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, who's the President and Chief Operating Officer of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm that now has, I believe, about $500 million of exposure, long exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, he's going to host today's interview. I'll pipe in with a couple questions maybe at the end. But uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Brett, for the interview. Thanks, John. And Dan, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm, you know, I subscribe to your newsletter and uh, your, your stuff has been very helpful to me and, and us on our, our sort of intellectual journey. Um, we're going to get bullish today. We're going to be unapologetic about it. Um, and I want to start by saying that, you know, I've been on Wall Street for quite a while and I've seen, you know, many great trades and they all end. And so the trade that I think is going to end is buy Bitcoin at the halving, sell it. 14 to 18 months later, repeat, repeat, like the Olympics. Um, you have a, a, a super cycle thesis. I'd like you to share that with our audience and, um, and talk about it a little bit. Sure. Uh, Brett, John, thanks for having me on. Uh, always fun to talk Bitcoin, especially bullish Bitcoin. <laughs> I've um, been through a lot of different, uh, went, been through three distinct bull bear cycles. You don't want to talk FUD. You don't want to talk FUD, Dan? You want to you stay on the other side of it? We can talk FUD as well. Happy to, you can throw it my way and I can, I can, I can take them. Um, but today, yeah, talking about the super cycle theory, you know, we've got these cycles that have occurred in Bitcoin. 2013, 2017 are the most prominent newer ones that most pe people are aware of. In these, we saw Bitcoin's price go up 10x, uh, 20x, 100x from trough to peak. And then we saw, you know, after that, it go down uh, another 80% in the pre preceding bear market. 
Now, with this new cycle that we're going through, going through currently, Bitcoin is far different than these other ones. Uh, the, in 2013, 2017, the macro markets were largely in a bull run. It was a, bear, it was a bull market. Uh, everything was going well. And so, you know, these speculative cycles were, were basically a local phenomenon uh, based on Bitcoin's having having uh, the having events that occur every four years, reduce the amount of newly minted Bitcoin that are released to the market. So if demand stays the same or increases and supply has diminished, that the price tends to naturally go up. And then we see this speculative cycle occur. With this moment, we've not only got a local, um, you know, traditional four-year boom-bust cycle that's occurring, and we're currently in the bull run part of this cycle, and this is the halving cycle that I mentioned before, but also COVID occurred and the whole world woke up to, you know, starting to question, can my government be trusted with the money, with our money? And when we looked at money printer go burr occurring, you know, during COVID in 2020, people are really starting to question, uh, will my money retain its value over time? Well, can I trust my government to be prudent, uh, to be fiscally responsible? And Bitcoin is a great antidote to bad central banking policy. It's got a fixed 21 million hard cap. And in this world where literally trillions are being printed weekly, Bitcoin shines out as this example of a great way to store value that is hard to seize. The monetary policy is immutable, can't be changed, and just is a very distinctly you know, different gold 2.0 sort of asset. So I don't think we're going to see Bitcoin behave like we did in the other cycles where it goes up and then it drops 80% in the preceding bear market. I think we could see, and this is why I call it a super cycle, we could either see a more intense bull run as the whole world wakes up to Bitcoin's value prop. Uh, Bitcoin's TAM or total bull addressable market should place it as a per Bitcoin value of between a million and $10 million of Bitcoin. Now, this could be one of the final cycles where Bitcoin steps in and, and is realized by the world as a global store of value asset. Um, we could also see a flavor of the super cycle where we see maybe a normal bull run, but less of a bear market where we you know, peak to trough might be only 30% or 40% versus an 80% uh, peak to trough. So that's what I mean by the super cycle. And that's why I think this time might be a little bit different than the uh, previous market cycles. Um. There've been a lot of big events, right? Over the last, ranging from corporate spying, which is something I never thought possible. That was certainly not in the, in, in the coming years. Uh, PayPal, so the on-ramps are becoming easier. Um, the oldest bank in America. And, and it seems like all the large, which one of them is, they're all important. Is, is there one that you think will look back, you know, with the perspective of history and say, you know, that was a key moment. That was a, you know, that actor played a special role in this. I think the Tesla moment is that moment. Michael Saylor played a great moment of, you know, making Bitcoin owned by company treasuries a reality. But Tesla, you know, MicroStrategy and Saylor are, are much lesser known than Elon Musk, who's a legendary investor, a legendary uh, product builder, a te technological innovator. Uh, you know, he's considered like a Steve Jobs-esque sort of level. Um, to see Tesla buy Bitcoin, I think really put Bitcoin on the map. I did not expect Bitcoin to be purchased by treasuries this soon. Uh, this kind of blew, blew away my expectations as well. 
Um, and we're only getting started. You know, how many companies are currently going through the exploratory process of adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet? You know, when will PayPal do that? When will all of these other companies that are embracing Bitcoin start to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet? I certainly didn't expect this to happen this soon. Um, this kind of blew my mind. And I think Tesla was the moment when, you know, MicroStrategy doing it was cool. But then Tesla was like, whoa, this is a, this is a huge deal. I mean, Tesla is a huge, huge company and Elon's really well known. So I think that was sort of the pivotal moment that Bitcoin, people are starting to really accept Bitcoin as a mainstream idea. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think there's, a, there's another element to that that's interesting, which is, as you know, whenever anyone buys Bitcoin, they feel like they're late, right? Like they missed it. Elon Musk saw this really early, right? You know, he and Reid Hoffman and Peter Thiel, those guys have been in it, right, since, I don't know, eight, nine years. So, you know, for him to take, you know, a billion and a half dollars, right, of Tesla, right, at 33, 34, 35, I can't remember what their average price was, doesn't really matter. I, I think sort of addresses that that challenge that we as investors all make in, in making our first Bitcoin purchase. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this too is that this increases Bitcoin's protection against, um, I would say like aggressive anti-Bitcoin uh, regulation in the future. If large corporates start buying Bitcoin, it makes it very hard for countries to ban it. Because if they start banning it, then it immediately causes a huge stock panic where uh, all these different equities that hold Bitcoin would start to drop. Um, and these are popular equities, like for example, Tesla is held by a lot of millennials. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, these sort of moments are, are really, really pivotal for Bitcoin to be perceived as a globally recognized money or a store of value asset. It's um, kind of a night and day sort of, uh, it's like pre-corporates buying Bitcoin and post, you know, really represent distinct stages in Bitcoin's development. Um, you know, when I was thinking about the super cycle theory, which I came out with uh, over a year and a half, two years ago, you know, I was thinking maybe, oh, okay, well, the um, big macro traders will start to buy it. That was kind of a big check mark for me as like Bitcoin being recognized as a global store of value asset. Um, but then the corporates coming in, I think this was just a really surprising, really awesome, unexpected sort of uh, movement that occurred very, very early. Um, there's so there's trillions of dollars sitting in cash or cash equivalents, and you know all it takes. I think um, the uh, Ark Invest folks did some research and found if 10% of corporate treasury cash moved into Bitcoin, Bitcoin's price per Bitcoin would be around four hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin. And the thing that makes that, I think, even more exciting, right, is if you look at the S&P 500, most of the cash is on the balance sheets of technology companies, right? You know, Apple, Oracle, Microsoft, because, you know, like energy companies are all debt. Financial services companies don't hold that much cash. Retailer, you can just go sector by sector. So the people who are most inclined to be comfortable with Bitcoin, coincidentally, are the ones who are sitting on the vast majority of the cash on S&P 500 balance sheet. So that's, you know. Yeah, I think that's a great note to make, which is that, you know, who better, who is sitting with all the cash and would they be open to investing some of that cash balance into Bitcoin? And the answer is, as we're increasingly seeing, the answer is yes. So Dan, I I, I, I am a, a um, uh, I guess, call me a disciple of your super, super cycle um, uh, theory. But when you look at the, the overall cryptocurrency market, 
a lot of the sort of almost call them garbage stuff's going up also. So do you think that we may just be seeing a risk on trade? Um, what was your what's your reaction to that that observation? Yeah, I, I think uh, Bitcoin is still becoming it, it's uh, Bitcoin's evolution. Ha, we've seen it be highly volatile and act like a risk on trade for most of its existence. Um, Bitcoin, however, in its final iteration or what it, it is aspiring to be is the risk off trade. Bitcoin is aspiring to be a gold 2.0 risk off sort of sort of trade. Uh, and sometimes it reflects that, for example, uh, Cyprus in 2013, when they started to do the, do the bail-ins, Bitcoin started to pump in 2013 based on that, that news. That was the catalyst. Uh, when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, Bitcoin moved on that. Uh, same with Brexit. So Bitcoin does exhibit some uh, you know, catalyst moments that it exhibits characteristics of a risk-off asset or risk-off trade. However, I would largely agree that Bitcoin is sort of buoyed in this moment um, based on, you know, we've seen a lot of, as the commonly term, the common fund term stonks, as the stonks go up, the kind of like very frothy equities market, you know, I think some of what, how Bitcoin is moving is probably because of that, uh, as folks are looking across the world and, and looking to put money into different assets in a more frothy environment, Bitcoin is a very volatile, fun asset to go trade. Um, so I'm not sure if we can like cleanly classify Bitcoin's price movement as like, oh, this is a, this is a, a folks piling into a more risk on or risk off sort of trade. It, it's kind of both, which makes it a really weird type of investment because it ultimately is gold 2.0. So it's a risk off trade, uh, but it's becoming a gold 2.0. So it's a speculative, as Jerome Powell puts it, it's a speculative store of value. So in that regard, it might be considered more risk on. So the answer is kind of both. It's, it's not really a, a clean answer for what your question was, but I would say it's exhibiting behaviors of both. No, I think it's interesting. You know, I, I think of Bitcoin as being the next great tech stock, right, for, the, for this, this coming decade. And, and I find it interesting that, that the gold narrative is really, you know, caught on as well as it has. And, and gold's down 20% since August. So it's, it's indisputable that Bitcoin is, you know, sucking capital out, out of gold. But I bet if we were to take owners of gold and owners of Bitcoin and created concentric circles, we would see actually very little overlap. Um, so yeah, I think the narrative helps people intellectually, but, you know, I, I, I think it's limiting. Um, but anyway, move, moving along, um, I don't want to talk FUD, right? So FUD, for those who, who aren't on Bitcoin Twitter, is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What I do want to, want to ask you is, what are the one or two or three real risks of Bitcoin? So if you and I are talking in five or 10 years, and we're like, we got that wrong. I don't know, like, we were just wrong, right? Why? Yeah, we're sitting down with a whiskey going, why did it all, why didn't it work out? Yeah. So I would say the, the number one threat to Bitcoin would be governments. Bitcoin was created as an antidote to poor central banking policy and directly undermines the authority and legitimacy of governments across the world. If, if the money supply is ripped away from governments, it dramatically reduces the size of government and also reduces their power. So Bitcoin inherently is, is anti-government. Um, and so governments have the capacity to limit the growth of Bitcoin in certain ways. They can ban exchanges, they can ban ownership of it. Um, they can heavily tax it. 
So I would say that's probably the number one threat to Bitcoin would be governments. Those are the most powerful forces that we have on earth that could change and alter Bitcoin's growth trajectory. Do I think that they have the capacity to kill Bitcoin? No, I, I just think they could thwart the growth or, or stall the growth. What's kind of funny about Bitcoin though, is that it's, it's such a wild new idea that most governments haven't taken it seriously um, that it, of its threat. They, they consider it kind of like a very strange, weird child. They're like, great, Bitcoin, you go do your weird thing and you be volatile and exhibit all this behavior that we consider to we, we consider the asset to be not a threat. Um, but Bitcoin moves so intensely that by the time governments perceive it as a threat, it may be too large to stop, where gov- uh, Bitcoin is owned by 30% of FANG, uh, 30% of like the top tech stocks. Um, uh, maybe 40% of the population owns Bitcoin to some extent. And at that point, Bitcoin has achieved such a network effect that it becomes impossible to stop at that point. Um, so I would say governments are the biggest threat to Bitcoin. I wouldn't say it's a killer threat to Bitcoin. Um, there's other ones as well of like flaws in the protocol, zero-day exploits. These would be unforeseen uh, technical issues with Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin broke, um, or which I would consider a very, very low probability. Um, Bitcoin has operated with 100% uptime since 2013. So Bitcoin's network is super resilient and not many changes are made to Bitcoin because changes introduce more complexity and potential for flaws to be found or exploited. Now, I think the Bitcoin community and the Bitcoin developers are very cognizant of that. So changes could occur very slowly to Bitcoin. So I would say like, you know, the the uh, very rare occurrence that there could be a, a big exploit that causes a material issue, especially as Bitcoin is being increasingly adopted by institutions and they might perceive that as untrustworthy. Um, you could lump in, I would say like uh, quantum quantum computing underneath that. That's a popular piece of FUD that people like to bring up. I don't think we're anywhere close to quantum computing being a reality. And I think we're going to see far ahead of time uh, based on NSA and other NIST encryption standards, uh, those would change before, those would change a decade before quantum computing becomes a reality that would crack like AES-256. Um, but you could lump that under like, maybe we are way underestimating how fast things are moving on the quantum side. So like a technical issue, I would say is like a, a bucket of risk. Uh, and then we have like Bitcoin being attacked on a government level. Ultimately, there could be another threat which is more societal and behavioral around what if the world becomes socialist, like very, very socialist, um, where almost everyone buys into socialism. In that case, people don't care as much about preserving wealth. And if Bitcoin is a very minority sort of group, as we've seen in World War II, different minority groups can be persecuted if they remain a minority and don't become integrated into, you know, or become such a small group that can be isolated and attacked. I think Bitcoin in a circumstance where the world almost the entire world becomes socialist, that would be a very hard thing, you know, for Bitcoin to be able to um, remain if it remains a minority sort of trade, if a very few percent, a very small percentage of the population owns it. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think almost all humans choose to want to preserve value and preserve their wealth, no matter what income status they come from or where they come from across the world. So, but that, that could be a threat too, which would be a large behavioral shift in humankind of just, people caring less and less about preserving value. Uh, well, that, that, that was a little bit of a bummer, but I asked the question, um, you know, but I do agree. I do agree with governments and um, 
You know, I think one of the exciting things about Bitcoin is, is you think about the nature of the institutional adoption. It's happened along different verticals, right? So you've had corporations, hedge funds, mutual funds, endowments, pension funds. The one you haven't had yet is countries, right? We're waiting for it to become a reserve asset. And it's done on me recently. Well, what happens if Iran starts buying a bunch of Bitcoin, right? Or North Korea. Um, again, it's probably unlikely to be sort of a country that we embrace that will go first for the very reasons um, that they'll be attracted to Bitcoin. I guess that probably just ties back to your government risk, right? Does that agitate our government in a way that's unhelpful? Correct. Bitcoin is the enemy of your enemy, right? And I see countries like China and Russia probably embracing Bitcoin first before the United States government in terms of them buying it as like, we're going to hold this as one of our reserve assets, uh, you know, sort of replacing gold reserves that China and Russia have both stocked up on. Um, I do, you know, I am, I'm a libertarian, so I'm naturally critical of any government, uh, but I do love the United States. I think the United States is a great shining example of, of how to go build and, and, you know, we, we have a lot of things that we can fix, but I, I still think we're a great country and I, I would really, really love to see the U.S., step into owning Bitcoin and really owning this as an innovative thing instead of like embracing Bitcoin versus, you know, bracing against it, hoping that it, hoping to hold on to their US dollar dominance versus going, well, we see this new paradigm of this new sound money coming out. Maybe we could use this as an opportunity to keep America great, but also understand that things are changing and that we should embrace it. I think one of the things that, that Bitcoin benefits from, you know, I'm, I'm a Goldman Sachs alumni, and I've been disappointed at, at that Goldman hasn't moved more quickly, although I do think they're the one firm that has the capacity to catch up quickly. And I was talking to a colleague, and when he's a former Goldman guy, and he said, you don't understand, David Solomon can't get through his emails on a day, right? So he does, it's very hard for these large legacy, and I think, you know, Yellen and Powell, like, like Bitcoin just isn't on the list, right? They just don't have time in a day to really spend a lot of time thinking about it. You know, when when I went to Brown, Janet Yellen went to Brown, I was really proud that she became, you know, treasury. But, you know, she said some stuff that was really just uneducated. And, and, and I thought about this sort of David Solomon line and, you know, uh, applying. But um, I do have a question about interest rates. So rates have moved up somewhat. And, the, and what you hear among Bitcoiners, again, I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat. I'm very bullish. But you hear some folks say, well, if rates go up, that's inflationary. That's good for Bitcoin. If the economy sucks and rates go down, that's good for Bitcoin because then there's nowhere to put your money. That feels like you're just looking for a bull case wherever you can find it. Um, and... You know, what do you think about the back, backing up of the 10-year, right? That's not generally good for long-duration assets. Bitcoin is the ultimate long-duration asset. Um, I have my own thoughts, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, there's a joke in the Bitcoin space called it, you know, this is good for Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, you know, FUD is printed. Oh, well, uh, people don't understand Bitcoin, which means a lot more could come realized, come to realize the value. So this is a good thing for Bitcoin. So it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a very classic Bitcoiner argument that this is good for Bitcoin. Um, I think Bitcoin, I mean, as an uncorrelated asset, which was kind of a, a way that Bitcoin was framed before the gold 2.0 narrative really, really sunk in in late 2020 as an uncorrelated asset, Bitcoin is kind of a weird sort of asset. It doesn't really follow a lot of existing paradigms of like 
oh, Bitcoin naturally will trade up or down given a certain catalyst or a certain other asset moving up or down. So I'm not sure if there's like an easy answer to describe Bitcoin's behavior as interest rates climb or as they or as they go down. Um, I don't think I don't think Bitcoin is old enough yet. Uh, you know, it's only been around 12 years, but you know, in terms of being like even even sort of a base level of analysis or being liquid enough to be considered like a mainstream asset, it's a very new asset. Um, so I don't think we, we've really seen that behavior. Now, we could look at other traditional assets like gold and be like, oh, maybe Bitcoin should mimic some of those gold characteristics. Or uh, as people, you know, as interest rates move up, we would see as uh, gold has dropped, maybe Bitcoin should drop as well. But as we kind of described earlier, Bitcoin is simultaneously a, a risk on more technology in, investment, um, but at the same time is aspiring to be a risk off gold 2.0 sort of trade. You know, this is probably where I date myself. You know, when I was in high school, you know, the 10-year was at 12, 13, 14, 15%, and cash was as high as 20. So to me, one and a half, half a percent, two, it's all the same, right? You know, it's almost like it's ridiculously low rates. It's just, it's hard for me to get really agitated about moving from 90 basis points in the 10-year to one four, you know, it's, it it all seems ridiculously low. uh, and if we look at rates over time, over the last couple of decades, we've seen it continually decline, you know, as as we've just really seen uh, quantitative easing and other central bank mechanisms distort, as I would say, accurate market pricing of, of what an appropriate level of risk is. So, I, you know, we, we've seen sort of a from from that era back in the 80s, we had double digit interest rates, you know, that was, that was really, really crazy. But I would say now is equally surprising with how low rates are, right? Like, you know, you look at these interest rates on mortgages and everything else and you're like, wait a second, why, why is risk priced so low? Uh, Did, did we come up with better ways to assess risk? And, and, and you look at this and you're like, this is insane. I mean, um, you can go out and borrow really, really cheaply, uh, but the world hasn't changed how risk uh, is manifested. Uh, we've central banks have very much distorted that risk reward mechanism in the form of interest rates, uh, to where I think the that were the market's hugely mispriced. So, um, in thinking about Bitcoin, right, in a very fundamental way, it gets simple, right? Which is there's more demand than supply, right? Um, now, now a big part of the demand was coming from, let's say, I would say one of the big stories of 2020 was Grayscale, right? So Grayscale is the investment manager who runs GBTC, which is essentially a closed-end fund, trades on the pink sheets. And I think it started 2020 at approximately called $2 billion in assets, and it's over $30 million. Obviously, the price has had it contributed a lot, but their inflows were just staggering. And, you know, they were accumulating a large percentage of Bitcoin that was mined in a day. And in fact, JP Morgan issued a report that if grayscale inflows were to slow, that Bitcoin would probably fall from 40,000 to 20,000. As we talked today, it's over 50. So we know that was wrong. Grayscale, I didn't check today, but as of the weekend was trading at a 5% discount and their, their inflows have really you know, come to ground to a halt. Um, can you just give your thoughts on on that market mechanism, how important it is or is not? Yeah, great question. So GPTC is a, a grantor trust. 
And the way that it functions is that it owns Bitcoin exclusively. So it's a single asset trust that owns Bitcoin. And uh, institutional traders or high net worth individuals who are accredited can transfer their Bitcoin in uh, in an in-kind transaction or buy it with, with dollars. And they can buy at the underlying price. And then there's the market price, which is what the world is, is, is buying GPTC at on ex- uh, different brokerages. So GPTC on the uh, retail investor level is a great way to get exposure to Bitcoin because you, you can buy it using your traditional brokerage account. And, and so for this convenience, typically GBTC trades at a premium because there is more demand for GBTC than there is Bitcoin and GBTC and that the ability to arbitrage that away is, is, is tricky. I'm, I'm giving folks who are listening a, a little bit more of a No, background. I think it's helpful. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, I, it's it's pretty complicated too. A lot of people, uh, I've, I've done a bit of digging into this, and 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 some people just you know, if we if we just jammed on it, it's a little hard to get context. So, um, the reason why people buy GBTC, it's a great way to get exposure from your traditional brokerage account. The reason why people buy the underlying or transfer in Bitcoin is they can arbitrage the difference between the market price and the underlying price. Um, now, it's not reversible. They can't. Uh, you, know, you can't redeem your shares of GBTC. So it's a one-way transaction. You can't redeem your shares of GBTC for the underlying asset. Um, you can contribute the underlying asset and then sell it uh, after a brief lockup period of six months. So with GBTC, um, what we've seen is that there's a premium typically over time. There, there's a few moments when it trades at a discount. Premium uh, insure typically what the premium ensures is that more and more Bitcoin will flow into the fund, and this causes a, a suction on spot where it sucks away all these coins to take advantage and they get locked up into this fund to take advantage of that GBTC premium. So, as you mentioned before, this suction from the GBTC fund was so large that it was larger than the total mined newly minted Bitcoin per day, uh, which is a big deal. And what we've seen though recently over the last week is that the premium has collapsed down to a discount. Now this does occur, um, hasn't occurred very often, but it does occur for this instrument. What that means is that uh, folks could buy GBTC on the open market and that share of GBTC is worth less than the actual underlying value of all that Bitcoin that's held by the, the Grantor Trust. Um, I expect this discount to only exist for a brief period of time. Bitcoin had a traditional, uh, during these bull runs, there's a couple pullbacks that occur as the price climbs higher and higher. And we recently had that, and that's where this discount started to appear, was during a pullback. So as demand increases again, as, as fervor for Bitcoin increases, I expect the demand to start to build again for the GPTC instrument for these traditional brokerage accounts. Um, there's also the benefit of like, if there's a discount, we technically can arbitrage that the other way, where like if you buy it, you're buying it at a discount relative to the underlying uh, asset. So I think GBTC discount will it probably be a short-lived phenomenon, maybe for a week or two more. Now, longer term, if an ETF was approved, the GBTC instrument could trade at a, at a permanent discount. And in that case, there's all sorts of different things that could occur. Uh, the trust could be dissolved and the coins could be redistributed back to the holders of the grantor trust, um, or the fund could be converted into an ETF. So uh, that, that's sort of my holistic view on, on how, how, why this premium or discount occurs, uh, where we are long-term with this, and then um, 
you know, what, what could, what does this mean for the market? I, I don't think it's a hugely bullish or bearish sentiment. I think it is largely just demand for GBTC as a financial instrument dropped. Um, Let's make some you know. reckless predictions. Um, uh, <laughs> what's your view on uh, an ETF, a US ETF? All right. Well, I can, I can throw out a random number here. So <laughs> uh, from my understanding. So when I when I first looked at the GBTC trade, I one wanted to understand the mechanics around it, but also I reached out to a couple of buddies who are really knowledgeable with the Bitcoin ETF sector or that sector, but um, process or the uh, application process. And from my understanding, there's a lot of blockers there on the uh, what would make the SEC comfortable with approving a Bitcoin ETF? There were some weird things around uh, like market pricing, uh, for example, like uh, they were uncomfortable with some dynamics of how spot price is found with Bitcoin and they wanted market surveillance installed on most of the venues uh, that would be used to source spot liquidity for the ETF, um, which is strange because I believe with gold, gold has a, a pretty opaque spot trading market and the and the SEC approved a gold ETF. So from my understanding, there are some blockers that will be unlikely to be resolved in, in the year 2021. So my guess would be probably 20, early 2022. And this would be after, I think we see the peak of the bull run in, in late 2021, early 2022. So the demand for a Bitcoin ETF becomes so big that the SEC has to Kind of reconsider some of their their um, you know red X's on the applications and go okay okay fine we'll we'll give you that instrument that you're looking for so based on insiders that I've talked to it seems to be pretty far away um, so my best guess would be early 2022. Wow, I'm more bullish than SuperCycle Dan Held. I, I I think it's definitely a 2021 event. Um, I think the, the Canadian experience is an important one. So right, Canada announced an ETF, and, it, and I think it it serves as a laboratory that addresses, I think, concerns that were probably well-grounded two, three years ago when the SEC last took a very serious look at a Bitcoin ETF. But I think the market has just matured past them. And I also think that you know when you have GBTC at $30, $40, $50 billion, just from a pure investor protection standpoint, it trades on the pink sheets, it is a high fee product relative to ETFs, that the SEC's mission, you know, almost mandates them to, to, um, to do something. Now, you may be right, because the government just can't move fast. So they could, you know, get on this right away, and we could slip into 2022. But I, I don't think that'll happen. But who knows, right? I mean, it's, I mean, I, I hope I hope I'm not right. I would prefer a Bitcoin ETF come sooner than later because I think it's an instrument that needs to be created to allow retail investors better exposure to Bitcoin. I mean, now of course I would recommend that anyone who wants exposure to Bitcoin to buy it on spot and eventually self custody it. But certainly, folks will want to buy it with their traditional brokerage, and an ETF is an easy way to do that. So I, I certainly hope it happens in 2021. I would be overjoyed. I think that will be a, a huge pivotal moment for Bitcoin and just introduce a ton of new flow uh, on the demand side to where, I, yeah, I, I would be overjoyed to have it. I, I, do, I guess just over the years, I've, I'm a little bit more cautiously optimistic when it comes to the government moving quickly on Bitcoin regulations or Bitcoin instruments. No, well, it's funny. I, I, you know, I'm friendly with a number of, uh, again, Goldman Sachs alum who've been in Bitcoin for a long time. And what I think they have felt until recently 
a bit like, you know, Charlie Brown, Lucy and the football where like they've heard the institutions are coming. They've, and, and I'm like, no, no, this is actually happening now. Like, I know, you, you know, it's happening now. And, and I do think that the combination of grayscale size and the Canadian experiment uh, being so successful are, are game changers. But again, you always would want to bet on the government taking, you know, a while, you know, versus sort of, you know, moving quickly. Hey, yeah, John, and, sorry. And to throw a question back at you, I, I heard that the Goldman, Goldman's considering reopening their trading desk, uh, yes. like a crypto trading desk. Any Anything you can share there, Brett? Because I thought that was super interesting. No, I think, um, uh, you know, I think the, the Goldman Sachs CIO was on CNBC about a month ago. And, you know, she was taking a sort of cautious position. And I think that sort of threw people off the scent. Um, that's one person's view. And, you know, uh, I think uh, anyone who, you know, I'm not our CIO, you know, you, you let your CIO do their thing, but you also have to have a business to run. And, you know, Goldman Sachs, I think, uh, is, is, is seeing everything that's going on. I think this will be the first step um, I can tell you that, you know, I'm a, a client of theirs on the brokerage side. They have massive demand from their high net worth clients and other people are going to have products and they're going to have to do it. And I think they'll do it quickly. I think you'll probably see them, JP Morgan, maybe Morgan Stanley, you know, be sort of at the forefront in terms of, you know, having products, you know, probably first uh, for, you know, people that meet certain, you know, net worth thresholds. And then, you know, eventually when the SEC cooperates, things that are registered and can go out more broadly. John, you want to hop in here? I'm the FUD guy. <clears throat> My job is to come in here and rain on the parade and, and make Dan confront all the different elements of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that exist in Bitcoin world, because I think you do it as well as anyone. And it started with Tether, or it didn't start with Tether, but Tether was one of the main uh sources of FUD. People accuse Tether of essentially creating leverage in Bitcoin. You know, people are buying Bitcoin with dollars that don't exist. You wrote what I think is the, the best analysis of why that might not be a problem, but is the Tether issue now dead due to the settlement with the New York Attorney General or, or uh, where does that stand right now? Yeah, great question. So uh, by the way, if anyone wants to read these, we keep bringing up my newsletter. If you Google Dan Held Substack, that's where you can go find some of these uh, longer form uh, articles. So I write this every Thursday. Um, you can check it out there. Now regarding Tether, Tether is a stable coin created by uh, a combination of Tether plus some entities that are associated with Bitfinex in exchange. Um, Tether has been a long source of uh, FUD, so fear, uncertainty, and doubt. The, there's a couple different worries. Uh, one is that Tether is pumping the price of Bitcoin. Now, this is largely based off of a academic research report done by two University of Texas researchers who uh, violated the core principle of any sort of data science endeavors, which is finding that correlation as causation. <laughs> so they, they felt that uh, oh, Tether uh, issuance of new Tethers uh, coincided with Bitcoin's uh, value rising. So Tether pumped Bitcoin. And no, that's like saying that umbrellas cause rain. That's, that's not the case. Um, so that was the first uh, worry and FUD around Tether was that Tether is using a pump the price of Bitcoin. 
But that has largely been debunked as very poor, intellectually dishonest sort of research. Um, there's no correlate. There's no causational analysis that's been done to prove that Tether causes Bitcoin's price to rise. The second big component of Tether FUD is that Tether, in terms of trading volume and an asset in the space, is so large that it could represent a systemic risk to Bitcoin. Um, we've seen a lot of different assets come and go in the cryptocurrency space that are of equivalent size in terms of like market cap percentage relative to Bitcoin. We've had outright scams. Um, BitConnect being one of the top five tokens was literally a fabricated scam. And that came and went and Bitcoin's price wasn't affected. Uh, we've had a, lots of other coins come and go. We've also had a lot, another large coin like XRP that had a recent issue with the SEC where there being, uh, there's, a, there's litigation going on there with uh, concerns over, um, I think it's either fraud or securities risk based on how they launched their, their, their token. Uh, Ripple is a very highly traded asset and across many different exchanges, including the one I work at, Kraken. And we didn't see Bitcoin's value plummet when demand for tethers decreased or concerns around tethers legitimacy increased. Um, we, so with Tether, the, the worry that this asset, which I think only represents, if we look at the total market capitalization of Tether relative to Bitcoin, I believe it's under two digits. So it's, it's like under 10%. Um, I think, you know, if that went to zero, we wouldn't see this spillover into Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not buoyed by Tether. You can use dollars, yens, yen, euro, pounds to go buy Bitcoin. And there's billions of dollars a day of that flowing in as demand for Bitcoin. Um, Tether wasn't the only instrument to use to buy Bitcoin. Uh, neither is it a systemic risk to the space. And then finally, exchanges like Kraken, the one I work at, our users hold Tether, um, just like our users might hold an, another asset that, that could go down to zero. Uh, as an exchange, we don't have, there isn't a fundamental risk to us based on Tether. Uh, we're not holding Tether as an asset. Um, it's, it's simply the uh, asset that's being held by some of our users, just like any other crypto assets. And, and many of those, as we all know, go up and down in value tremendously. Uh, but we haven't seen, the exchanges are all built to be, to protect themselves against, you know, highly volatile assets and even scenarios where assets go down to zero. Well, Dan, so I look, I agree that the Tether thing is nonsense, but the one thing I do find curious, and just given the time you spend in the ecosystem, I like your take on this, is, you know, they don't audit Tether. Um, I, I, I don't think these guys are going down in the Business Hall of Fame. Um, it, it, it's probably the case that they're not backed one-to-one. Why are people using it? In other words, why isn't there another U.S. stablecoin where the market demands you got to audit? Um, I, I just don't understand why it's actually grown substantially while under investigation by the New York Attorney General. It offers to me nothing. I don't see what the attribute is relative to other stable. What am I missing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and. What's really funny here is like when I wrote about this in my newsletter, I, I started out with the caveat of like, I don't find Tether or Bitfinex to be a reputable business. I'm not defending them as a place I would want to go trade personally. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't want to disparage them too much or throw them under the bus, but needless to say, yes, there have been a lot of shady things done with Tether, with Bitfinex that I would find very unsavory and I would not recommend folks go trade there for sure. Um 
Tether is used by offshore exchanges that want to circumvent the U.S. government regulatory environment, and they need a U.S. dollar equivalent style asset. An exchange like this would be like Binance, uh, the main Binance exchange. Uh, Tether is used as an instrument to essentially as a synthetic dollar or as we call it, a stable coin. And, and so the, it replicates a dollar function for the exchange. So it's largely used by non-US folks to have a dollar equivalent asset that they can use to trade with. Um, so that's either they can use it to arbitrage, so they can move it between different exchanges for, for more quant arbitrage style trading. They can use it as a way to exit Bitcoin or another crypto asset and hold it in something stable. And so it, it largely replicates the dollar function for exchanges that don't want to go through the regulatory hoops of actually holding U.S. dollars and having to interact with the U.S. banking system. Okay. All right. We're going down the list of FUD. Energy. So people talk about how Bitcoin, if it continues on its current trajectory of transaction volume and price, it's going to consume more energy than we create on Earth it, it causes the emission of greenhouse gases. It's not ESG friendly. Is that correct? If it's not, why is it not correct? And, and what, is, what is the situation around energy usage related to Bitcoin? Yeah, so this is a, this is a very common, very old piece of FUD around uh, concerns of environmental concerns with Bitcoin. Don't tell Janet Yellen that it's an old piece of FUD, Dan. I mean, Yellen, I mean, Yellen is, her comments on Bitcoin were literally all the pieces of FUD put together into one <laughs> giant piece of FUD. So I, I was I was very much impressed. Whoever she's talking to has literally incepted into her head all the top pieces of FUD rolled together. Um, energy FUD, though. Okay, people worry that Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. Well, let's look at the existing financial system and, and look at Bitcoin relative to the enormous amounts of energy that our existing legacy system uses. Think about how big this is. We've got bank, uh, we've got investment bank servers. We have tens of thousands of employees that work in the investment banks that also go home to their homes and they have cars and they have food requirements. And then you have all the regional banks and then you have all of the commercial bank, the commercial banks and all the regional commercial banks. And then you have all the bank branches, every single bank of America, uh, JP Morgan Chase, all those retail branches, all the physical energy used to go build those and run the air conditioning and the, the, to, pay, to feed all those people in the homes that they occupy. And then you have the court system, which enforces legal contracts or, or money-related contracts in, the, in, our, in our economy. Um, and then you have the treasury and they have printing presses that print dollars and they have servers. And then you have the Fed, which I think the Fed has some absurd amount of employees like 70,000 people work at the Fed or some shit like that. It's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> what do you need 70,000 people for to enforce a monetary policy? It's insane. Um, and, then, and then the list goes on. Then you have the military, which is also used to enforce the legitimacy of the U.S. dollar. I mean, think about the t atomic, uh, you know, nuclear, uh, like uh, nuclear reactors that are on um, submarines and in battleships and <laughs> the, the, it goes on and on. And it's an absurd amount of energy that's spent on the existing financial system. So Bitcoin should never be viewed in isolation. We should always examine it relative to other energy consumption, especially another monetary system. Um, and the dollar is a great one to look at because it's massively less efficient than Bitcoin. What happens is folks isolate Bitcoin's metric of energy consumption because it's easy to do that versus the long kind of list of different ways you could calculate the existing system's energy uh, requirements. 
And because of how simple it is to distill Bitcoin's energy consumption, folks never look at it relative to everything else. Um, when we look at energy consumption of many other activities, for example, playing Xbox or PS3 or PS4, um, the energy consumption of gaming consoles is equivalent to some countries. Uh, same with Christmas lights. Uh, the U.S. uses more energy than an entire country just to power our Christmas lights. Now, energy consumption isn't a bad thing. People use the energy because they want to go. They paid for it and they want to go use it for something. I want to watch the Kardashians, and you want to watch Nova, and someone else wants to go play baseball. Energy consumption is inherent to our universe. Uh, the universe is based on the laws of thermodynamics. And we all use energy to live, breathe, and do anything we want to do. Every human activity requires energy. And, and so I think at the core root of this argument, not only is it absurd to look at Bitcoin's energy usage in isolation, because it's much more efficient than the existing system, but also at the core root, it's people don't believe Bitcoin is doing something useful. That's ultimately what these detractors don't like about Bitcoin, is they don't like Bitcoin itself. But how ridiculously subjective, right? The idea that you can criticize someone else's energy consumption, but you don't criticize your own. Like what TV shows do they watch? What food do they eat? Maybe a hamburger has uses more energy than a hot dog. I mean, if you went down the list of like us having to constantly champion the morality of my energy consumption per decision I make, it would be an absurd world that we live in. Luckily, we have a market mechanism that allows us to do this. It's called, I paid for it. <laughs> I bought my energy. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. And there's not like an energy police that goes around and, and shoots me because I'm watching the Kardashians and that's considered a subjectively wasteful thing. Um, so ultimately at the core root of this argument, people just don't like Bitcoin and they find that its energy consumption is wasteful because they just don't like it. Yeah, and I find that because Bitcoin has some roots in libertarianism, you know, some prominent libertarians were some of the early evangelists and adopters of Bitcoin. There is this notion <clears throat> among people on the left that Bitcoin is somehow like a libertarian conservative instrument, when in reality, it's actually a tool for economic empowerment. And Jack Dorsey has been very vocal about this. And, and we agree. And I know Brett is a fairly progressive guy. He worked for a, a Democrat as the uh, basically vice mayor of Los Angeles. And I consider myself a very progressive guy. And if you really educate yourself on Bitcoin, it's it's a tool for empowerment and allowing people to disentangle themselves from the whims of government. And um, so I, I hope that over time, as members of you know, the progressive movement start to understand Bitcoin, that it can lose that stigma uh, as a purely you know, hyper-libertarian type of tool. What's funny is that libertarian... Uh, what, what's funny is uh, in this new paradigm over the last couple of years, libertarian ideology is now considered right-wing-ish, which is kind of bizarre because libertarians really dislike both sides equally. <laughs> right. Libertarians are like the weird kid and they're like, hey, we don't like Democrats or Republicans. Um, and, they're, and they're traditionally very like freedom-oriented, you know, very socially liberal and fiscally conservative, um, but which both I would say are very more, actually more liberal when you think about it. I mean, they're both about freedom and, and, and expression and ownership of of you know enforcing property rights and and just having basic freedom, um, but yeah, it is it is. I do think it's really cool to see Jack Dorsey, who's um, you know I would consider like more liberal and, and kind of a West Coast liberal, be uh, really embracing of Bitcoin. I think that changes the narrative. So, yeah, I agree. The earlier narrative of Bitcoin being libertarian is being replaced by Bitcoin is kind of for everyone sort of narrative. Yeah.
Yeah, I think right, wearing, wearing, yeah, wearing my West Coast liberalism, um, I think getting Bitcoin over 50% renewable and, you know, 67, it will, will be super helpful because I think you're right, Dan, but it's a nuanced argument. And, you know, I just think it's easier to say it's sun, it's wind, it's hydro, what do you care, right? And, and I think that that will be the thing that will really end this FUD. More. I, I don't know that we're going to win well, you're right. I don't know that that's going to be the winning argument for the people that don't want to hear it. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I don't disagree with your premise that that is a good argument to make around Bitcoin's energy mix. Uh, how much renewable energy does it use? What I have found in my experience debating folks is that even when you address that, they move the goalposts. Um, you know, at first it's using too much energy. And then, then you go, well, how about the existing financial system? And they go, oh, okay, well, fine. But the energy it's using is bad energy. And then you give them metrics around that. And they're like, yeah, but actually Bitcoin is not, you know, I just don't really like Bitcoin. I, I don't think it's doing anything useful. And so I don't disagree with you, Brett. That's the logical way to argue it, um, which would be to talk about its energy mix. Um, but I do think with these folks, what I found is like the core root of the problem is they just don't like Bitcoin. Right. We got to keep working on them, Dan. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, you know, like Martin Luther King said, you know, you got to you got to keep giving people a chance and they'll eventually come around. So. Um, sorry, John. Well, Dan is definitely the Martin Luther King of Bitcoin. And, you know, we're, we're bumping up against our allotted time here. Uh, so I, I want to cut it off there. And I want to have you back uh, on in the future, Dan. Again, we were very excited about this talk. We have done the intellectual journey into Bitcoin. You've been a big part of that in terms of reading your uh, newsletters. And so we appreciate all the work you've done to educate people. Uh, and, and this was fantastic. So thanks. And we hope to have you on again soon. I had a blast. Thanks for having me, guys. And it does sound like you've done your research. I, I think these questions were really informed, really in-depth, and a lot of fun to, to answer. Well, we appreciate so that. that. We're, we're definitely uh, you know, not, not as deep down the rabbit hole as you, but we're learning. And obviously, we have a significant amount of exposure to Bitcoin. So it would be irresponsible for us not to be doing the homework. But thank you. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk. Again, we, we love engaging with an audience, which is our traditional community at SALT, that might not be quite as informed on digital assets and Bitcoin in particular, but we love doing these episodes of SALT Talks to educate people, you know, whether it be financial advisors, RIAs, other alternative investors, uh, to help them learn and go down the same journey that we went down. So thank you for tuning in. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is titled Salt Tube. They're all free for anyone to access. Uh, we're also on social media. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference. Dan is a fantastic Twitter follow as well, uh, if you are so inclined. But we're also on Twitter. Uh, in addition to Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, and please spread the word about these Salt Talks. Again, we love educating a broader uh, cohort of people and growing our community. But on behalf of Brett and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.